electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, Tesla feeling the heat from competitors, but is there really a risk to their dominance? House Republicans have a new nominee for speaker, but the uphill battle may just be beginning. Pfizer breaking down, the stock tumbling right now as it issues a warning about COVID vaccine sales. Forget driverless taxis, while your next package may come in a robot car, plus champagne problems. The Taylor Swift frenzy sweeping theaters. And sometimes you beat the books, other times you get destroyed. Can I dig myself out of a hole with this week's NFL picks? We're going to find out. You can tell me where I'm wrong because we are ready for kickoff. And last call is up right now. All right, good evening here, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here live on Last Call. We've got a full slate tonight, but we have to begin where the entire world is watching right now, and that is Israel and the Gaza Strip, where the Israel-Hamas war is escalating after Israel ordered civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate the area and said there is much more to come in retaliation. NBC News foreign correspondent Josh Letterman join us live from Israel tonight. Josh. Well, we are now about two hours past the end of the 24-hour deadline that Israel's government gave to some 1.1 million civilians in the Gaza Strip northern portion to evacuate to the south. And uh, so far, we haven't seen any signs of that major ground incursion that everyone has been bracing for uh, starting. But certainly people uh, both in the Gaza Strip and within Israel uh, are really on edge for that to begin at any moment. In fact, we learned from Israel's military today uh, that short of that full-on ground incursion, Israel now has conducted its first uh, on-the-ground raids into the Gaza Strip since Saturday's terrorist attacks, with Israel's military saying that ground troops went into the Gaza Strip not only to fight terrorists and look for weapons, but also to gather information that could be used to try to uh, free some of the hostages now being held uh, in the Gaza Strip. But even as humanitarian organizations uh, warn about the impossibility of relocating so many people out of the northern Gaza Strip. Uh, We learned today uh, from Palestinian health officials as well as witnesses in the Gaza Strip that some 70 civilians who were evacuating in three convoys toward the south uh, were killed in an Israeli airstrike. Uh, That is raising fresh questions uh, about the viability of what Israel is demanding uh, as it says that civilians should leave for their own good uh, head farther south ahead of this major operation that Israel is expected to carry out to, according to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. Josh, they're talking about evacuating over one million people. Where would they go? How how would an an evacuation of that size and scope be conducted? 
That is the big question. That is exactly the reason that the UN, the World Health Organization, nonprofits are urging Israel to repeal that order. They say it's simply uh, impossible. Basically, Israel is saying everyone in the north go to the south. Uh, but this is an area where the basic infrastructure, the roads, have been uh, largely destroyed. You have uh, more than 400,000 people who have already been displaced from their homes. It's not like they have uh, places that they can go. And the entire Gaza Strip now operating without electricity. Fuel is in very short supply. And so the basic necessities that you would need, even in the best of times, uh, to try to relocate that many people in 24 hours do not exist. Josh Letterman live in Israel tonight. Josh, stay safe. Thank you very much. All right. Well, the conflict raging overseas also being watched closely by Wall Street. Higher rates also playing a role in how stocks trade. But you can see the major indexes selling off as the day went on with the S&P 500 closing near session lows. And it wasn't just stocks on the move. Gold also catching a bit of a bid. But nothing today moved like oil. Crude oil rising about 5%. That's its single one-day jump in about six months. Concerns about the Israel-Hamas war spilling over into, say, Iran? All this is Iran's energy minister bragging today in a speech about how high Iran's oil production is, saying they have gone from just over 2 million barrels a day to over 3 million barrels a day, and that their exports have also surged, by the way, from about one ship per day to three or even four. And the fact that our sanctions on Iran either don't seem to be working or are not being enforced or some combination of the two has put at least another $40 billion plus into Iran's coffers over the last three years. Let's talk about all of this with Rapidan Energy Group Global Director of Oil, Clay Siegel, and Cornerstone Analytic Founder, and President Mike Rothman. By the way, Mike Rothman has been likely to more OPEC meetings than any American by far going for, I think you said, 37 years. So, Mike, good to have you on as well, Clay. Mike, let's start with you. Uh, hard to predict where this ultimately goes. Any way to model what may happen if there is some kind of incursion or uh, retaliation on Iran? So the, the question you're asking is the one people have been asking since last Saturday. And the issue with proxy wars is those that are behind it usually keep an arm's length distance so that they can't be directly engaged or blamed for what's going to happen. And we're not saying Iran is smart or dumb, but in terms of how the country's won in these various proxy wars that are afoot, it seemed pretty obvious that even though they're known to support Hamas, they would not do anything that would likely get, engage them directly and make Israel respond kinetically to them. So we're in the camp that Iran being engaged in the war spreading to other countries or something that looks like a repeat of the aftermath of the six Arab-Israeli war and Arab oil embargo is very, very unlikely. Yeah, Clay, Iran is flush with cash. I mean, there's all this partisan fighting over this $6 billion payment when I just noted that their foreign currency reserves have gone up at least $40 billion, and that's probably a low estimate over the last three years because they're shipping oil around the world. But sometimes when Iran gets mad... They put mines, explosive mines in the Strait of Hormuz, where about 40 percent of all the world's oil comes out, creates disruptions. Saudi Arabia, of course, most at risk. What kind of modeling scenarios do we have for sort of best case, worst case? Because we do not know what's going to happen. Brian, thanks for inviting me to join at the end of a, a really tough week. The... Um, 
the way the oil market should be looking at this is to start to increasingly price in the risk that Iran will get involved because Iranian involvement in the combat is the big issue for energy markets, both on the gas side, when you think about the liquefied natural gas that comes through the Strait of Hormuz, it's about 20% of global exports. And to your point on the crude oil side, about 40%, more than 15 million barrels a day. So we're kind of at an inflection point where we look at the two main actors on this escalatory ladder. You know, Israel, how are they gonna conduct this ground operation in Gaza facing two really formidable challenges. They've got the safety of more than 100 hostages to think about during that ground campaign. And they also run the risk of the Lebanese group Hezbollah becoming actively involved on Israel's northern front. So then they would be fighting a two-front war. Hezbollah, yeah. for its own part, has some decision-making to do. It's at a fork at the road here. Is it going to open up that front against Israel at the cost of decimating Lebanon, that would be almost an inevitable result, but they may need uh, feel the pressure to open up that second front in solidarity with the Palestinians in Gaza and to exploit Israel's vulnerability. Those are the those are the uh, strategic decision-making points that we're looking at going into the weekend. Yeah, and a great point. By the way, can we put that map back up, guys, there at Strait of Hormuz? Because, you know, listen, for those who are not following geography that closely over there, Qatari liquefied natural gas is so critical to Europe right now with the Nord Stream pipeline particularly off heading into winter. Their, their, their inventories are fairly full, but all those Qatari LNG ships are also passing through that high-risk point, which I think at its narrowest point is only about two miles across. So it's not just Saudi oil. It could be Qatari LNG that's going to Europe. All right, Mike, that aside, if we got some greater disruption, Iran bragging today, 3.1 million barrels per day. Not sure I believe that. You can tell me if you do. Does the U.S. or the world have the, the inventories and the spare capacity, we know the Saudis do, to make up for any disruption? So that's actually the only question that matters, which is the oil balance and what's happening. And most people have kind of ignored or wanted to ignore the fact that we've already drawn 750 million barrels out of global inventory since the summer of 20, that the non-OPEC production gains people thought were gonna happen fell very, very short, that global oil demand has basically run ahead of forecast like 30 months in a row, et cetera, et cetera. And OPEC has been very adept at controlling its production because they are intent on getting budget-friendly prices. So when you look at the balance and you think about spare capacity, this is not like a market back in the 80s. Like when I started going to OPEC meetings, they would last for weeks because there was so much spare production capacity. And I, I get most of the people watching this probably don't have a lot of familiarity with the tanker war. But when the tanker war started in 1984, you have Iran and Iraq at war, the two most populous countries in the region. Iraq is targeting yeah. Iran's oil facilities. Iran was trying to mine the Gulf. We, the U.S., was running something called Operation Praying Mantis to protect tankers. And the price of oil actually just trended lower and lower and lower through that whole escapade. Okay. Why? There was so much spare capacity, it didn't matter. Today, you don't have the spare capacity. In fact, when the IEA put out a year or so ago that the incursion of Russia into Ukraine would cause a three million barrel a day forfeiture of people buying that oil, it was kind of an impossible call to back up because the world didn't have the capacity yeah. to deal with that kind of a shortfall. So no, if this was in some sort of theoretical universe to expand and become a Middle East uh, adventure, there's a lot of problems because oil supply is very, very tight. Yeah, and SPR, where it is as well. Um, 
Clay Siegel, Mike Rothman, guys, was a tough week. Both. So appreciate you joining us on a Friday. Try to rest and uh, hug your family this weekend, guys. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Brian. All right, I'll see you at both. the OPEC meeting. Yes. Uh, I, let's see. Well, I hope so. All right. Speaking of Israel, one Wall Street firm stepping up with aid. Investment aid Jeffries raising $13 million for humanitarian aid for those impacted by the terror attacks. And that is not all. Mike Bloomberg will match with another $2 million and another prominent family, the Gersons, also coming in with a $2 million match. So good for Jeffries for stepping up. And let's hope and see if some other Wall Street firms follow suit with aid. All right. Up next. Pfizer issuing a big warning about COVID vaccine sales. The stock taking a big hit right now. We'll bring it to you. Plus, House Republicans have a new speaker nominee. But the drama far from over will head live to Capitol Hill. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. And tonight, it is all about Pfizer and maybe a little bit about Moderna. Shares of Pfizer slammed. Company slashing its outlook, blaming weak demand for both the COVID vaccine and its Paxlovid treatment. What's even a little more bizarre is that Pfizer is now below where it was trading before the pandemic. Joining us now is Herb Greenberg, editor of Herb Greenberg on the Street at Substack, also CNBC contributor and somebody that has owned until recently Pfizer, Herb, thanks for coming on kind of late because they broke, by the way, the classic Friday night news dump. They break this stuff after hours on a Friday, which, which, which just makes people nervous. But that said, I can understand if they retraced the COVID gains, but they're below before the pandemic. Well, I think, look, right now they're trying to figure out what to do. And I think the most important part about this entire announcement, it's not that, that they've got the issues with, uh, with uh, the COVID vaccine. They also have a cost alignment program in here. So they're basically telling you they're sort of like kitchen sinking this quarter, at least they're attempting to, because they're going to they've got basically they say they're going to have a, you know, a charge savings, they say, of three and a half billion dollars. And that's going to include about three billion dollars that includes severance. And this is just an estimate. So I think what they're doing is they are trying to right the ship and in their defense. And look, I own this thing in 2021, to be fair, from the lows to like fifty two dollars. And then I realized the thesis had changed because it reali- you realized people weren't going to get COVID vaccines the way you thought they would line up every year. But the company basically, it was a moving target. Everybody knows this now. And they're talking about regular vaccines for COVID in 2026, 2025. I will say one thing here. So when you say, what's going to happen next? Because that's the real question here. And everyone does forget, not that I know that it matters right now, Brian, 
They do have a GLP-1 pill that is in phase three trials. How that will work out, they say it doesn't have the nausea of the other weight loss drugs. So looking forward, the story is going to shift. But COVID is now a mature business. It's yeah. going commercial. And it's not what it was. G- GLP-1, by the way, is, those, is the weight loss drugs we've talked about, like Ozempic and Mounjaro. We've got so Pfizer's got a, a, a very, I don't want to say good candidate, but if you've made it to phase three, you're doing okay. Herb, and I understand that there's indemnity here in the United States. Uh, maybe you don't want to touch this question at all, but I'm going to ask it because the stock is below pre-COVID. There's a lot of other countries where there may not have been indemnity. I'm not sure. Do you think there's some liability risk here for Pfizer on any level? I'm not going there because it's outside of my purview. Yeah, fair enough. Sorry. No, no, don't, don't apologize. I think it's a fair question because either that or Pfizer's got just not good products in the pipeline or patent cliff well, risks on other stuff. I'm it'll, just be interesting. To- it'll, it'll be interesting to see what Moderna says, what Moderna does. You know, Moderna, you know, I got my last shot. I've been getting, I've got each one of these, but they've been Moderna shots. And if you look at it and you look at even yeah. people my age who basically say, oh, they say Moderna is better for seniors. So, you know, there's been, a, you know, there's been some studies that have been beneficial to Moderna. Then you had the, the RSV vaccines come out, which is a combination of different companies. But, you know, look, I don't know. Yeah how it will shake out. Neither do you, neither does anyone. But I do think the ball boy on this, watch Moderna. Yeah, I, th- I think so, too. I think so, too. I, I got Pfizer, by the way. And now we see, I don't, just don't know about the demand there. Plus, it's a, it's a hundred, hundred plus dollars per shot. It's not covered by the government and taxpayers like it used to be. We'll see what happens. Classic, well, classic Friday night news dump, Moderna falling in sympathy. Herb Greenberg. It. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. You're very welcome. All right. Right now, I got to get to this endless carousel on Capitol Hill. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, the latest nominee for House Republicans that are struggling to agree on their next speaker. Emily Wilkins, live in D.C. with us. Emily, why is Jordan now viewed as the Republicans' best baby slash only option? Well, Brian, it's because when Republicans got into a room today and took a vote, uh, Jordan got a majority of Republicans voting for him, 124. Now, of course, 124 is a very far cry from the 217 that he will need to hold the gavel. And there were a couple signals that it's going to be really difficult for Jordan. First of all, he wasn't the only candidate running. Congressman Austin Scott, a Republican from Georgia, threw his hat in the ring at the last minute, told me that he wasn't even planning to run for speaker when he woke up in the morning. And he got 81 votes. That That's a pretty good showing. It's like 40 percent of the Republican conference. And then after Jordan did win that majority, they, then they took another vote. They said, hey, of all the Republicans, who would be able to back Jordan on the floor? 55 Republicans said no. So now Jordan has to spend the entire weekend working to get all of those no's to a yes. And that's definitely going to be an uphill climb. But Jordan is winning over the support of a number of his colleagues. You know, Jordan, you think of him as the hardline conservative, one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, kind of the the lead attacker for the Republicans' attacks on uh, Joe Biden. But today, before the vote began, Jordan was actually nominated by Congressman Dusty Johnson. He is the chair of the Main Street Caucus, and they're kind of more of your classic conservatives. And here's the case that Johnson laid out for Republicans as to why they should back Jordan. Jim Jordan is going to give us the best opportunity to get things done during the 118th Congress. This is an unruly bunch. And uh, Kevin McCarthy did a magnificent job of delivering results week in and week out when, frankly, uh, many members didn't want to help him get there. I think Jim Jordan is, uh, listen, he's uniquely talented uh, to help us get done what we need to get done in the 118th. 
Now, even Jordan's allies recognize that he has a pretty steep hill to climb here. Congressman Tim Burchett, who has backed Jordan pretty consistently, said that members are frustrated with him because Jordan often helped the campaigns of candidates who ran against sitting lawmakers. Kind of that divide between your more classic Republicans and this more conservative wing that's emerged over recent years. But Tim Burchett said that he does believe that Jordan is going to be able to find a way to get lawmakers together. This is what he told me earlier this afternoon. There are still some open wounds. I mean, you, you combine that with, um, with, with Steve Scalise and then Kevin McCarthy. And then, uh, you know, there's some people in there said they're only going to vote for Donald Trump. So it just, you know, you, you, you just, it's baby steps. And I think we are, we're moving in the right direction. Brian lawmakers have now headed home for the weekend. They'll be coming back on Monday night, and we will see whether Jordan is able to get the support that he needs to become speaker or whether Republicans are going to try and move on to a different candidate. Emily Wilkins, live in D.C., where the drama continues. Emily, thank you very much. All right, coming up, meet the future of deliveries. Please enter your four-digit passcode. And there it is. There it is. Why your next delivery could soon involve no one. That's next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. By now, you know all about driverless cars. But now that technology is being rolled out in California in different ways. And it all starts with delivery. NBC Bay Area senior investigative reporter Bigad Shaban explains. When it comes to navigating the streets of San Francisco, one of the major roadblocks for driverless cars has been the cars themselves, literally. They've stopped in the middle of the road for seemingly no reason, sometimes abruptly hitting the brakes and city buses. They've blocked emergency vehicles and even swerved right into wet cement. GM's Cruise and Google's sister company, Waymo, have some of the largest driverless fleets in America and hope to surpass Uber and Lyft as the next generation of ride-hailing taxis. While both companies acknowledge their technology isn't perfect, they say the vast majority of their rides go smoothly, adding that their own research has found their self-driving cars are in some ways safer than human drivers. But despite all the attention on robo-taxis, transportation experts tell us driverless technology is actually likely to expand faster and farther when it's used to transport goods instead of passengers. This technology is challenging. Berkeley research engineer Stephen Schladover has been studying self-driving cars for 50 years. The systems can actually be designed to be more cautious drivers than they would be if they were carrying passengers. If the vehicle needs to slow down or needs to be deferential to other road users, there's nobody sitting in that vehicle who's getting impatient because they're not getting to their destination in time. 
Which brings us to the new age of door-to-door delivery. The company Neuro has already deployed its self-driving cars to California, Texas, and Arizona for pilot programs where the robocars have delivered food and goods for companies including Walmart, Uber Eats, and Domino's. Almost half of the daily trips taken by Americans are for these local errands that we have to run. Have our robot do your errands for you. Dr. Andrew Clare is chief technology officer for Neuro and invited us into the company's Silicon Valley headquarters to check out how their cars work. Once one arrives at your home, a pin is sent to your phone to unlock your delivery. Please enter your four-digit passcode. And there it is. There it is. Claire says convenience isn't the only thing fueling the technology. He says Neuro's cars are also delivering safety by reducing traffic-related injuries and deaths. The safest trip is a trip that you never had to take in the first place, where you have this vehicle go and get Uh, your groceries or your pizza or your laundry for you and bring it back to your home. Neuro's robocars first hit the streets in the Bay Area more than three years ago. Today, there are about 50 in California, but the delivery service has only logged several thousand miles on the road without a human in the car. Waymo and Cruz have each driven roughly 5 million driverless miles and have been in dozens of crashes over the past three years, according to the DMV. Many of them appear to be the fault of other drivers, like when this person ran a red light. But over that same time period, state and federal transportation records show that while in self-driving mode, Neuro's cars haven't been involved in a single accident across the state. What do you credit that to? From the vehicle design uh, to our software design, safety is our number one priority. Big rigs are also speeding ahead with driverless tech. Trucking is a $940 billion industry in the U.S. with more than 13 million trucks that largely rely on highway driving, which is typically more predictable and less complicated than city streets. But the trucking industry is down drivers with a shortage of more than 78,000, which is only expected to double over the next decade. The driving population is really aging rapidly, so they're going to age out and they can't find new drivers. One potential solution is putting robots in control, which would also mean fewer pit stops, so trucks can be on the road longer and follow one another more closely, since you can sync driving between different trucks. It's called platooning, and it can dramatically improve gas mileage since there's less wind resistance. Autonomous big rigs are still largely in the testing phase, but the company Too Simple already has driverless trucks on the road in Arizona and China. Imagine a world where you have self-driving trucks um, that can operate 20 hours a day, basically increase freight capacity at a fraction of the price of which today's trucks are being operated. Cheng Lu is Too Simple's CEO and says cutting gas and human labor means trucking companies could reduce their budgets by 40%. And cheaper transportation could mean cheaper goods for consumers. That would considerably reduce costs. Robot trucks have got to go, hey, hey! But not so fast, says Jason Rabinowitz, a leader with the Teamsters, the nation's largest trucking union. Sign that bill! More than a thousand members recently marched to California's state capitol to support a bill that would require driverless trucks weighing more than 10,000 pounds to always have human safety drivers inside. Teamsters represent tens of thousands of truck drivers across California and worry autonomous tech could drive away their jobs. Should that be enough of a reason to steer clear of new technology? 
We welcome new technology. We want to make sure it's safe. It's about jobs, but it's also about safety. You want someone in the cab that could take over if needed. Absolutely. You could have even bigger disasters than we've had with the robot cars just because of the bigger size, scope, and, and weight, and speed of these vehicles. The threat to our safety is enormous. So Begad Shaban joins us now. Begad, good to see you again. Thanks for doing it. Great piece, by the way. So what is the latest? Where do we stand in that autonomous trucking bill in California? Yeah, Brian, good to be with you. Well, that bill requiring human supervision inside self-driving trucks actually got unanimous support here in California, but in the state legislature, but was actually vetoed by Governor Newsom. He called it unnecessary, saying that the laws already on the books in the state already give California the opportunity to create the appropriate regulatory framework. But the reality is right now, driverless trucks aren't allowed on the road in California because the DMV hasn't issued regulations on how they should operate. But it's likely that when they do, the first phase of testing, Brian, is going to require human supervision inside. But eventually, California could be lined with big rigs that have no one behind the wheel. Yeah, and I, and I love that. That uh, I think you called it platooning. I would just call it drafting, almost like the Tour de France, the Peloton. Bagat Shaban, another great piece. Keep them coming, my man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Brian. All right, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. As they say, if you come at the king, you better not miss. But are other car companies finally starting to land some blows on Tesla Plus? Something that has not happened in nearly 70 years is now happening in the American nuclear industry, and it's a good thing. All right, welcome back. Time now for our daily dose of Tesla. They report their numbers on Wednesday, but ahead of that, listen to this. We know that Tesla is the undisputed king of EVs. But a new report shows that the size of the crown might be shrinking a bit. Tesla owned half of the U.S. EV market in the third quarter. But that is down 12% from the beginning of the year. Still, its closest competitor, Ford, is about a million miles away with just about 7%. Now, Tesla CEO Elon Musk has been a controversial figure the last few years, even more so since he bought X, formerly known as Twitter. So could that actually be a reason that their little corner of the pie, the auto pie, is shrinking, or is it really just competition? Joining us now is Gerber Kawasaki, president and CEO, Ross Gerber. Uh, Ross, I got to tell you, about pretty much everybody in my town owns at least one Tesla, I feel like, and I've had people literally say, I love Tesla, I'm not going to buy one or another one because of Elon Musk. I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Do you think this is a, a slight reason they've had to cut costs? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I've heard a lot worse than that. You know, people the actually despise show. him, you know. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and you know, in its core market like California, where Tesla sells a ton of cars, you know, I don't think Elon's doing anything to help sell cars. So that said, you know, we also promised we'd have some sort of real advertising. And we've seen some stabs at it, but really no real commitment to advertise. And and this is definitely hurting Tesla um, in my parking lot, for example, in my office, my two partners, one of them owns a Rivian now, and one of them owns the new BMW i7. It parks next to my Plaid, and, and it used to be all Teslas. So I think we're seeing that across the board. But just the same, Tesla's still 50% of a market that's growing by 50%, so this isn't so bad. 
Yeah, it, it is. Listen, they didn't have to advertise forever because guys like you who would buy right. a Tesla would be like, my God, you got to drive my car or check this out. It's unbelievable. It rides, whatever. Sort of word of mouth to friends. Now there's competition, right? Now there's actual real competition in the market. Why, why don't they, they advertise? Well, that's a great question because actually, like, I don't actually think the competition is that bad for Tesla from the EV side. What I think it is is that early adopters of, of EV technology all have EVs now or Teslas. So really, you have to expand the market for EVs. And we're seeing that market expand rapidly, but we're still talking out really small. It's like 7 or 8% of the overall car market. But if you actually ask somebody why they don't own an EV or a Tesla, the answers are absurd. There's a, you know, like there's a big lack of understanding and education and a ton of misinformation that's put out about how great it is to own an EV and how superior they are as an automobile. But Tesla needs to get that messaging out to consumers that don't really know much about EVs. And that's, I think, what's hurting them. Yeah, I, there's something there. I think I think there's something there. And the price cuts can be good, but then they might signal something else. Either way, we'll get you back on to talk about it. Tesla, we got to do a daily dose of Musk, SpaceX, Tesla, something. He <laughs> controls everything. Ross Gerber, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, All thanks right. for having me. All right. In the meantime, last night, we highlighted a key moment for the American rare earth minerals market. Well, tonight, let's focus on nuclear. And it all starts where else? Ohio. Centris Energy has officially started uranium enrichment and their Southern Ohio facility. This is historic because it is the first American-owned, American technology uranium enrichment plant to start production in nearly 70 years. And it matters because this process is critical to produce the fuel that is needed for more efficient nuclear reactors. When it comes to enriched uranium, Vladimir Putin and Russia dominate the global market. So this facility could up lessen our dependence on them for, by the way, a carbon emissions-free and always-on source of power. Joining us tonight is the CEO of Centris Energy, Dan Poneman. Dan, good to have you on. Listen, um, you know, you just heard our previous guest, Ross, say there's a lack of understanding about EVs. I, you know what? Take that up 50-fold and talk to people about the lack of understanding in nuclear. I've talked to really smart people who still think we're talking about reactors built like Chernobyl. Please correct them. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to be with you. Uh, that was a great lead-in. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's a whole new generation of reactors. They call them fourth-generation reactors. Uh, the concepts have been developed over many, many years, but they use new forms of fuel. And in fact, uh, Centris Energy Corp. has the only NRC license to make this new form of fuel. People will know uh, that the traditional reactors, we have 93 of them now operating, use uh, enriched uranium up to about 4 or 5 percent. For those of you who saw the Oppenheimer movie, this is putting the little marbles in the bowl. If you take the concentration all the way up to 90 percent, you'll get naval reactor fuels or actually nuclear weapons. But if you want to get more octane, more bang for the buck and better performance, but not run the risk of spreading nuclear weapons, you go to just below 20 percent. That's what we're doing in Ohio. Yeah, so it's, it's a totally different type of a thing. So in non-nuclear scientist, physicist, whatever type language, explain what this facility does. What, are they what do you guys really do there? Okay, so when you pull uranium out of the ground, yeah. over 99% of that is the isotope called uranium-238. But what kids learn in school about atoms splitting and sustaining chain reactions, you have to get the other isotope uranium-235 boosted. That's what we call enrichment. 
So if you take these uh, molecules and spin them very, very fast, they split apart between the slightly lighter uranium-235 and the slightly heavier U-238. That's what we do. You have to take that ore out of the ground, grind it up into a powder, turn that into a gas, inject that gas into our plant in Ohio, spin it and spin it and spin it, and it comes out enriched. You yeah. can either take it up to 4 or 5% for a traditional reactor or up to nearly 20% for these new fourth-generation reactors. And nuclear is carbon emissions-free, but let's be intellectually honest. The entire supply, like an electric car, by the way, the tailpipe, there's no emissions, but the supply chain is just awful in terms of carbon emissions. Where do we get the uranium? Where, where, where does one source uranium these days? I'm not asking so, for like a nefarious purpose or anything. I want to be clear. No, 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 no. This is it's, it's a great question. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion. The whole front end of the fuel cycle starts with uranium. Uranium is prodigiously distributed around the world. It's in Canada. It's in Kazakhstan. It's in Australia. It's in Namibia. It's in Niger. Actually, technology you get out of seawater. The thing that's a critical path item, the bottleneck in the whole supply chain, that's enrichment because that's a capability. It's only controlled, believe it or not, by four state-owned enterprises. And believe it or not, mm -hmm. the United States, which invented this technology in the Manhattan Project, now has fallen out of the market. We've gone from the world's largest exporter to the world's largest importer. That's why this development in Ohio is so important. It's putting the United States back into the game that we never should have left and that we once dominated. Yeah, well, by the way, get in line. We used to be the world's biggest producer of lithium, and we gave that up. We used to have that mine in California, which we talked about last night. Gave that up, it almost shut down. I'm glad we're kind of bringing it back. It's sad it only took about 70 years, but at least we're here. Mm. Dan Poneman, Centris Energy. Dan, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Best to you. Thank you for having all right, a lot of stories about things we used to lead in. Anyway, speaking of leading, Taylor Swift just leads everything, okay? And if music stadiums and our wallets weren't enough, now she has come to conquer the movies. We're going to talk to a movie theater owner about this, another, another frenzy, next. Taylor Swift mania is in full swing, especially in cities like, you know, Kansas City. But now fans and parents don't have to take out a mortgage to see one of her concerts, sort of, because Swifties can now do their thing at the movies. Julia Borston has some early numbers on the Eras Tour movie. Brian, Taylor Swift's concert movie is already off to a massive start, bringing in $2.8 million from Thursday previews from 2,700 theaters. Now, the film could gross up to $150 million domestically in its opening weekend, according to the Comscore. It's going to be playing at nearly 4,000 theaters. The international launch is projected to bring in as much as $50 million more. Now, a week ago, the film already surpassed $100 million in advanced ticket sales, according to AMC, which is distributing it. But despite this weekend's hit, theater stocks are down today. AMC shares down nearly 14%, Cinemark down 6%, and IMAX down 2%. JP Morgan noting of Swift's film, followed by Beyonce's concert movie, quote, concert films are incremental, but not a game changer for theaters. We note that both artists are unique in the popularity of their live tours with a large number of fans unable to obtain tickets. We further highlight that the Eras film took advantage of a lull in the slate due to the strike. Now, the fact that the Actors Guild and the Association of Studios halted negotiations late Wednesday night is certainly weighing on stocks. 
as studios could delay more film releases as they will suffer from the lack of promotion from actors. Brian, back over to you. Cool story, Julia Borston. Thank you. All right, and joining us now is Marcus Theater's president, Greg Marcus. Uh, I've been reading stories. So normally, Greg, from what I they don't want no cell phones, turn off your ringer, and for goodness sake, you're never going to film it. You guys, I think, are encouraging phones. Like, pretend it's a concert, right? Absolutely. I, I never thought I'd be saying it to people. Yeah, but break out your phones. Turn it, we actually filmed a special trailer just for this. I actually go on our screens. I've been doing it for about 10 years to welcome people to the theaters. Uh, and I've never actually in one of those said, hey, please pull your phone out and turn it on. But we wanted this to be a concert-like environment. So we said, turn on your phone, stand up, sing, cheer, yell, dance, have a great time. That's amazing. And, and uh, have you been, I've read about some other theater owners. I think you're in the great, you're in the great state of Wisconsin, right? Well, that's where I'm sitting right now. Oh, We've, I love it. Uh, go to, near Milwaukee, go to Cops, go to the Mars Cheese Castle, send some our way. <laughs> anyway, that aside, you know, I've, I've heard about some other theater owners like taking seats out, making room for people to dance. You know what I mean? This is getting crazy. Yeah, that's uh, it is. You know what? It, it's it is. It just shows the breadth of what can happen in a theater. I like the people say in the movie business. I say no. We're in the getting together with other people business. And whether it's a movie or a concert or the Metropolitan Opera, which we've been playing for years, I'll tell you something. Watch a football game on a giant movie screen. It's insane. It's so cool. And this is going to be cool too. And I, I think yeah, I, look. Stay with us. Maybe we'll get you back on in like a week and we want to know how you're doing there and all your locations in Illinois and Virginia and Williamsburg and everything else. Uh, Greg Marcus, have a great weekend and good luck. Should be a profitable one. Should be a profitable one. All right. Coming up, nobody said it was easy. My attempts to beat the books are going about as well as the Denver Broncos offense. So with every week comes a chance for redemption. I'll give you my three NFL picks. At least a Kearney will tell me where I'm wrong. All right, let's end it with something fun, even though it was not fun for me last week. It's our NFL season long, Can I Beat the Books, where I try to outsmart Vegas with three NFL picks against the spread. It's all for fun. And it seems someone can actually have a nice winning percentage against Vegas three years in a row. I came in having two great years the last two. Not so much this year. I totally bombed last week. I admit it. I went 0-3 for the first time ever on the season. I'm 6-8-1. But it's a new week, and it's a long season, so let's have a little fun. It's Friday, right? The great Lisa Kearney back with us, host extraordinaire on FanDuel. And like last week, she will grade my picks. And it was was our first week doing it, and I bombed, and it's terrible. So hopefully I can flip it back, Lisa. Thanks for being with us again. I've got a theme here on my first two picks. And I'm going to start off, and I I can't believe, I don't think I've ever, maybe I have once bet on the Colts. Colts, four and a half in Jacksonville. This is a jet lag play. The Jaguars have been there in London for two weeks. They didn't take a bye week. The Colts tend to play them tough. I just don't trust Trevor Lawrence necessarily as a, as a, as a big favorite here. Your thoughts? All right. I just like this. I just have to say it out of the gate. The winner of this game, yes, is going to sit solo atop the AFC South, but we're talking about the spread here. The Colts are 1-7 ATS in their last eight games against the Jags. We all know quarterback Anthony Richardson is out with the shoulder and such timing for Gardner Minshew to now come in and take over this team facing his former team. Listen, he has a very capable backfield. We saw Jonathan Taylor's back. How about Zach Moss coming off that monster career game? But they have to be ready to face a Jags defense 
that is absolutely stout against the run, holding opponents to less than 82 yards on the ground per game. The Jags are 14-2-1 ATS only in head-to-head yeah. meetings since 2015. 78%, interestingly, of the spread handle at the FanDuel Sportsbook right now is for the Colts. I am fading the public here. I think Jags cover no problem. After last week, you should probably just fade all my picks. I mean, based on that. But <laughs> listen, this is on a normal week. I just think they're going to be tired. And that goes into my that goes into my second pick. It's mm-hmm. the Ravens. And I was going to go the opposite. The Ravens, minus four. They're not at the Titans. They're in London. You know, they have these dumb home games. They're at Tennessee if Tennessee is in Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And here's why I flipped my pick. Here's why I flipped my pick, Lisa. I I heard the Ravens arrived in London either like Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. They've been there days. Apparently, the Titans left for London last night. I traveled to Europe enough to know the second and third day are when the jet lag really hits you. I don't know why Tennessee didn't go there early. That's little. And I think the Ravens are a better team. We know that. But I think the London factor just makes this easy. Yeah, well, John Harbaugh learned from 2017, right? He's like, I'm not coming in late this time. Hey, listen, I do love these early kicks in London. It's breakfast casserole. It's coffee. It's neutral field. Both teams really wanting a feel-good game this week. We saw the Ravens have seven drops last week. It's most by any team yet this season. But I think it's out of their system by now. They're going to face a Titans team that is allowing opponents a 72% completion rate. That is near worst in the league. So, hey, opportunity. Zay Flowers is going to come in. He's going to have a monster game. He's going to see the end zone for the first time this season. And, by the way, this defense is really good as well. Time of possession, favor to the Ravens. They're second in the NFL with 18 sacks. Bad matchup for the Titans, who already can't protect Ryan. And you like it. I think I don't know why they didn't go early. Quickly, we got about 30 seconds here. I'm taking the Lions at Tampa Bay, minus three. They're they're just a far better team, period. That's that's my deep analysis. You know what? I like it. Um, Dan Campbell is an absolute monster. These Lions should be getting a lot more love. They're 12 and 3 in their last 15 games, dating back to last season. They're 27 and 12 ATS under Campbell. It's best in the NFL. I have a lot more to say on this game solely, but I'm going to leave it at that. 83% of spread bets on the FanDuel yeah. Sportsbook are for the Lions. Public's doing the right thing here solely. You and I are in this together. Lions laying three on the road. I like yeah. it. We're two and we're two and one this week together. I, I hope I don't let you down or anybody down. Thank you, Lisa. Have a great weekend. Folks, everybody, thank you. We will see you Monday. Have a terrific weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.